We will be in Psalm uh, 51. Having uh, finished Titus last week, we're now entering into the summer, and our focus is summer. It's going to be on uh, some of the Psalms. We're not going to cover all of them, but we wanted to focus on a a few particular Psalms. And so I thought for this first kickoff into the Psalms of the summer... Uh, that we pick a psalm, look at a psalm that is one of the most well-known of the psalms, that is written by the most well-known psalmist, and it covers, or in response to, one of the most well-known events in his life. And I realize that when it comes to Mother's Day, the theme of this psalm, repentance, is not the first word that might come to your mind. Um, What in the world does Psalm 51 have to do with Mother's Day? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm reminded of a particular message I preached a few years ago when we were in the Minor Prophets, and we were in Micah chapter 2. And the key verse in that chapter was in verse 11, where it, it was talking about a rebuke to the people who were just listening to preachers they wanted to hear. And in that rebuke, in the verse, it says, If a lying windbag should come and say, I'll promise you blessings of wine and beer, he would just be the right preacher for these people. And so I thought it'd be clever to entitle that message, Give Us More Windbags. Well, I was horrified when I was coming to church that morning because I realized it was Mother's Day. So I'm thinking about these ladies pulling into the church parking lot, and on the marquee it says, Give us more windbags. Happy Mother's Day. And now today, you pull into the church parking lot, the cry of the repentant. It's like, what does that have to do with... Well, I think I can recover this time, uh, or else they're not going to ask me to preach anymore on Mother's Day, but... You know, as I was thinking about it, there is, there is a connection. Because I think of, of anything that a mother or a grandmother would want more than anything else, it is that her child, her grandchild, knows Christ. Am I right about that? I mean, more than anything else, we want them to be followers of Jesus. And to become a follower of Jesus requires true repentance. To become a follower of Christ requires the kind of repentance we're going to see here in Psalm 51. Now, I know that connection might be a little bit of a stretch. And to be honest, I really didn't pick this psalm because of any specific link to Mother's Day. But, but I did pick it because I think this psalm is an important one to begin our series with this summer. Because this psalm deals with an issue that is critical, that is vital to a healthy, ongoing, uh, intimate, and growing relationship with God. Because at the heart of being right with God is repentance, true repentance, a genuine confession of sin. In fact, you, you can't even become a Christian if you do not truly repent. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Or John the Baptist, he had said in his first words recorded in Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or there's Acts 2.38 where Peter said to be forgiven, we must repent. Or Acts 17.30, Paul says God is now declaring everywhere that all should repent. And so repentance, true repentance, is at the heart of believing faith. But true repentance is also at the heart of ongoing faith. Because we as believers, although saved, we still struggle with sin. And we're repeatedly told in the Scripture how to deal with that sin. And that is through a genuine, a true repentance. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. When they had left their first love, and so he said, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or then later, Jesus tells the church at Pergamum to repent of their toleration of false doctrine. He tells the church at Thyatira to repent of the immorality 
that they were allowing to take place. And he tells the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, in Revelation 3.19, he says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. So in speaking to churches and speaking to those who are struggling with sin, who are believers or claim to be believers, the, the call is the same as to those who are unbelievers. Repent. Genuinely repent. Jesus clearly expects his sheep, when they're struggling with sin, to be repentant. Truly repentant. And I keep saying true because there is such a thing as a false repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He talks about a person feeling sorrow, and he says there is a sorrow that leads to repentance, but then he also describes, in the same verse, a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to true repentance. It leads to death. So just feeling bad about sin isn't enough. There's so many people today that that call themselves Christians and, and think they are Christians, but they've never truly repented. There are so many people who are believers and yet are struggling with a particular sin or pattern of sin and have done so for months and perhaps years, and that's because they've never truly repented of that sin. And so it's critical. We need to understand when, when Jesus himself and Paul and Peter, John the Baptist, when they use this word repent, what do they mean? What does it look like? Because that is critical to having a right relationship with God. And that's what brings us to this psalm, Psalm 51, because here David paints us a vivid picture of what a genuine or a true repentance looks like. Here we see, uh, I'm going to, to identify seven traits of true repentance, seven characteristics. So please look with me at this psalm. And what I'd like to do is first take a look at the introduction of the psalm. It's an introduction that David wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. And it's helpful because notice he says there, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. This introduction tells us not only who the author is, but it tells us specifically under what circumstance this psalm was written. And we see that it is written by David in the wake of one of the greatest moral collapses by a believer that we find in Scripture. Most of us are familiar with the regrettable story of David and Bathsheba, so I'm not going to go into great detail about it. But as we think about even those two names together, David and Bathsheba, I think we cringe just at the depths of sin in which David sank. We find this sordid affair in 2 Samuel 11, and it takes place right at the height of David's reign as king. If you read the first half of 2 Samuel, we find where David, he becomes king and he unites the kingdom together and, and he achieves victory after victory over his enemies. God is blessing him. He's prospering him. He's a beloved leader. He's a wise king. He's a, a noble man. He's one that's called a man after God's own heart. By the end of chapter 10, I mean, David is at the top. And then comes one spring when his army goes out to battle and David decides to stay home. And he didn't do that because there was some important matter of state that required his attention. No, David just wanted to lay around. And in fact, we read in the beginning of 2 Samuel 11, it says that he's sleeping in. He sleeps in until dinner time. That's when he's waking up. And one particular day, he wakes up around dinner time, wanders around on his roof idly, and then sees her. The wife of a man who was one of David's 30 mighty men, a loyal soldier. He sees her, she's bathing, he calls her up to his room, he gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover it up by bringing her husband back from battle, 
And his plan with her husband didn't work. And so he sends Uriah, her husband, back with a note in his hand that is sealed that tells the commander of the army to have Uriah sent on a suicide mission so that he'd be killed. That's exactly what happens. Uriah is dead. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. The child is born. And David's government conspiracy has succeeded. At least that's what he had hoped. But at the end of chapter 11... We read those words which says the Lord saw exactly what had happened. The thing that David had done, it says, was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And remember that story where he speaks of a poor man with a sheep and a rich man takes the sheep and and uses it for a feast. And David becomes irate. That man should die, he said. And then you remember Nathan's famous words, right? David, what are they? You're the man. And it was at that moment, the weight of David's sin came crashing down upon him. Where it was in that moment, the Spirit opened up his eyes to understand exactly what had happened. And Nathan the prophet said that because of what you've done, the nations are blaspheming God, and as a result, you will lose your child. David goes into his house, and it says that he laid upon the floor. And he didn't lay there to sleep. He was praying and fasting all night. And I believe it was in those moments as he was distraught and broken before God, lying on that floor, where the words of this psalm came to his heart. Now, I read this psalm earlier in its entirety. I'm not not going to read through the whole thing again. We will cover parts of it as we go along. But if you remember from reading that psalm, the psalm taken in its entirety wasn't just a few lines where David said, you know, I really blew it. I'm sorry, God. He didn't just cobble together a few words of of uh, meaningless apology. But no, as we look at this psalm, it, <clears throat> it is full of emotion and yearning and earnestness and passion and despair and discouragement and also, also hope. In fact, this psalm is so full of emotion, it's difficult to see a, a structure here. Normally, psalms have particular stanzas which can be easily identified. And as the many scholars and preachers I looked at it, there was many different outlines There's no consensus, really, of the structure of this psalm. I don't think David actually intended there to be a structure. He's just pouring out his heart and over and over talking about his sin and his need for forgiveness, pouring himself out before the Lord. And so I decided this morning I would take a little bit more of a a topical approach to this psalm and just consider a few themes that run throughout the psalm. There's seven that, that identify. There's several more, but... In the time that we have allotted, I wanted to cover seven. And what I call, I'm calling them seven traits of true repentance. Seven traits of true repentance. And the first trait is an obvious one, but it's an important one. And that is, the truly repentant goes to God. Notice the first verse in this psalm, after the introduction. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. To whom is he speaking? To God, right? He's going to God. And again, this may seem an obvious point, but it's a key to the whole thing. It's foundational to true repentance. And that is that the truly repentant goes first to God. He's the only one that can deal with the sin. Right? I love our brother Mark Mulcahy. He's always talking about this in prayer. Brother, right? God is to be a first response, not a last resort. And... He's right, and especially in regards to repentance. He's to be where we go first. He's the one we need to approach first. 
And yet, how often do we dismiss that? How often do we think, you know, God knows already. He saw it, which is true. I don't need to bring it up again. Some of us just feel so much shame. We don't want to utter the words out loud. Oh, you know, I've sinned again. (sighs) Some of us just think, well, you know, I'll do better the next time. It won't happen again, so I don't need to bring it up. Or we try to think of ways that we can make amends for it, ways that we can make up for it. But really, what can we do to make up for our sin? Where can we go to be right with God? How can we be restored? How can we be forgiven? Well, David knew the answer to that. He knew that at that moment in his life, lying on that floor in despair, all he could do was cry out to God. That's all he could do. And notice how personal his cry is. Notice the many personal references to God here. In verse 1, be gracious to me, O God. In verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips. Verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Appeal after appeal after appeal directly to God. This is what a repentant sinner does. This is where a truly repentant sinner goes. This is how a truly repentant sinner responds to their sin. Oh, God, be gracious to me. Oh, God, show mercy. Oh, God, forgive. And it's interesting here the way David phrases his appeal in this first verse. If you notice there that the first line compared to the second line, the second line is reversed grammatically. The first line, notice he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And notice the second line, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is a device, a poetic device that is used often by David in the psalm. It's called a chiasm. And that is where the second line of the verse is in reverse order compared to the first. And it is done that way because the end of the first line, the beginning of the second line, the the poet's intending to draw attention to that. Here in this first verse, attention is drawn to according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion. And as I said, it's used several more times within this psalm. And it is used as a point of emphasis because here David is emphasizing, listen, the only recourse we have in our sin, the only place that we can go is to God, to a merciful and loving God and throw ourselves at his mercy and appeal to him for forgiveness. That's the first trait of the truly repentant, to go to God. The second trait is that the truly repentant recognizes their responsibility. That is, the truly repentant takes full responsibility for his or her sin. Notice in verse 1, we see here David's repeated use of the first person. See in verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Look at verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you I have sinned. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my transgressions. Verse 14, deliver me from the guiltiness. David uses me, my, and I 28 times in this psalm. Half of them are in direct reference to his sin. In fact, verse 2, it's hard to see this in the English translation, but he uses another chiasm. In the Hebrew, it would literally read this. Thoroughly wash me from my iniquity, from my sin cleanse me. So again, he's drawing attention there. My sin, my iniquity, I did it. It's my fault. 
I'm responsible. David is emphasizing this over and over in the psalm by repetition and, and by poetic devices such as chiasm that I did it. Nowhere in the psalm, nowhere in 2 Samuel 12 do we see David making excuses. You know what? If Bathsheba wasn't out there bathing, I wouldn't have. If she wasn't so beautiful, I, I, I wouldn't have. You know, I was just in a weak moment. Any guy would have done it. Things like this just, just happened. There's none of that here. David makes no excuses. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't, he's not defensive when he was confronted about it. And that's a characteristic of a truly repentant. If you're truly repentant, this is what you say when you think about your sin. Yes, I did it. It's my fault. I'm responsible. No one else is to blame. So let me just ask you, is that how you respond when you're confessing your sin? Or if somebody confronts you about a particular sin? Or if a sin comes to your mind? You know, if we're honest, accepting responsibility... That's not our first or our normal inclination, is it? Let's be honest, right? That's not the first thing. We can go all the way back to the beginning on this one, right? Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve and God. And we all do the same thing. You know what? If my wife hadn't said, then I wouldn't have... You know, if my husband would just stop doing that to me, then I wouldn't... You make me so angry. If my parents weren't so strict, I wouldn't... And then here's the kicker. Many of us don't say this one out loud, but I think we often think it and believe it. God, if you had not put me in that circumstance, I would have never sinned. So often we point our fingers away from the very place it needs to be pointed. Don't we? I mean, why in the world did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7 when he was talking about Sin in the life of believers or in the life of others, he said, take the log out of your own eye first. Because that's not our normal inclination. We don't normally take full ownership of our sin. We don't normally accept responsibility. We deflect the blame. But look, if someone is truly repentant, he or she will own up to their sin and take responsibility for it. With no excuses. I don't know how many times, and I'm guilty of this too, but I don't know how many times involved in counseling, particularly with two people in a conflict, it's always the other person. I'll ask at the beginning, usually. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this in case you come to my office one time, but now you'll know the answer. But I'll ask them, okay, what do you think is the root of the problem you're having? And how do you think it could be fixed? 98% of the time, guess where the problem is? We all think that way. I do the same thing. Now, if Tina just hadn't, I wouldn't, you know, right? It's just that, like that. And I know in every case, and I know, honey, it's it's all my fault, always. I understand that. (laughs) But any sin that I commit is my fault. I did it. I can't blame my wife. I can't blame my children. I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame anyone else. If I sin, I sin. I have to own it. And if you're truly repentant, you will own it. David owned it. My sin, my iniquity, my transgression. No excuses. And not only does a truly repent own their sin and confess up to it, but also accepts the consequences that their sin brings. 
David in verse 4 says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There David acknowledges that God... Your response to my sin, the consequences you bring are right and justified. He accepts what God brings to him. Genuine repentance is more grieved over having sinned than the consequences that are being suffered. Puritan Thomas Fuller said, Sorrow for sin exceeds sorrow for suffering. Or, as Spurgeon put it in regards to David's response here, he said, If the It is not the punishment David cries out against, but the sin. Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than at the murder which brought him to it. Not so David. He is sick of sin as sin. His loudest outcries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. You know, it's interesting. I find, look at verse 8. I find David's remark there at the end of verse 8 very interesting. Notice there where he says, Let the bones which you have broken... Rejoice? What's he talking about there? This is a poetic way of David expressing the desire, the idea of finding joy, even in the consequences that God had brought as a result of his sin and consequences that were going to come. And here we see that this idea that the truly repentant understands that that God as a loving Father brings that discipline and He does so to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so here David wants to embrace whatever that discipline is so that he will be joyful in the work that God is doing. And here we see that truly repentant embraces not only the responsibility for their sin, but also the corrective consequences. And again, let me ask, could that be said of you when God brings those consequences in your life? Do you chafe against them? Or do you say, let the bones, Father, which you have broken, rejoice? This is what I need. There's a third trait of the truly repentant, and that is the truly repentant sees the sinfulness of sin. Not only does the truly repentant go to God, not only does the truly repentant recognize they're responsible, the truly repentant also sees the sinfulness of their sin. You know, you can't help but when you go through this psalm to notice how many different words David uses to refer to his sin. Blot out, or excuse me, transgressions, iniquity, sin, evil, blood guiltiness. Look at the end of verse 1, my transgressions. Verse 2, my iniquity and my sin. Verse 3, my transgressions, my sin. Verse 4, I have sinned, done what is evil. Verse 5, brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Verse 9, my sins, my iniquities. Verse 13, transgressors, sinners. Over and over, right? And some scholars suggest that David's using all of these synonyms because he's trying to draw out each different nuance and feature in regards to our sin. They will mention that the Hebrew word for sin used here is this idea of missing the mark. The word used for transgression has the idea of of rebellion. The word used for iniquity has the idea of guilt. The word used for evil has this idea of moral, moral depravity. And so then they give a lot of attention to each of these words and the meanings given to, to them. But I, I don't think David is intending to draw out every single nuance here. I think he's intending to use all these words and repeat them over and over to, to say with a forceful, emphatic voice, our sin is wicked, it's horrible, it's total, it's depraved, it's all-encompassing of evil. Again, this psalm is just a pouring out of his heart. 
And all that he's saying here is that sin is vile, it is wretched, it is atrocious, it is abominable. And what's worse than that, my sin, he's saying, is evil. My sin is rebellion. My sin is disloyal. My sin is vile. My sin is sin. Again, a truly repentant heart doesn't sugarcoat things. Truly repentant heart doesn't minimize the evil of sin. And listen, we should never water down our sin by using words like mistake or weak moment or a slip up or a fall or a lapse or an error in judgment or a problem. Those don't come anywhere near to what sin really is. We need to use the words David used because sin is despicable. Sin is vile. It is wretched. It is wicked. And why is it so? Why is sin so sinful? Because of who it's against. That's the problem. David makes this clear again in verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that's the problem with sin right there. That's what makes it so sinful. That's what makes it so atrocious. Because of who it is ultimately directed against. The greater the offended, the greater the offense. It's one thing to spray graffiti on an abandoned building building in an abandoned town, but it's quite another to do so on the Mona Lisa. It's one thing to step on an ant. It's another to murder a child. The greater the worth and glory of the object, the worse the crime. And who is more glorious and majestic than our Creator? Who is more loving and kind and good and holy and just than the Lord of the universe? Who is the most worthy of adoration and love and loyalty but the God of creation, right? He is the greatest. And every sin is first and foremost against Him. As David says, against you and you only. Now, now David is not dismissing Uriah here. He's not dismissing Bathsheba or the families of the soldiers who participated with Uriah in that suicide mission. They lost their dads and husbands and fathers. He's not dismissing that. Later in verse 14, in fact, he alludes to the murder, the blood that he had shed. But by his emphasis here in verse 4, we're meant to understand, as John Piper put it, that the horror of sin is first and foremost an attack on God. Sin is by definition anti-God. It's against God. Right? Sin is lawlessness, 1 John says. So ultimately any sin is only a sin because it is a sin against God. It's a rebellion against the one who has set forth those standards. And notice... That's how David, God described it to David in 2 Samuel 13 in the rebuke. He said, by this deed, David, by what you have done, the nations around you are blaspheming me because of what you did. See, it first and foremost reflects upon God. And if you are calling yourself a Christian, then your sin and my sin first and foremost reflects upon him. Right? Just like when when our children commit something and they it reflects on the family doesn't it it brings shame to the whole family in a much greater way does it bring shame 
upon God. In fact, David's murder was so wrong, not just because he took the life of another. What made his murder so evil was, as Genesis 9-6 says, because he murdered another human being who was created in the image of God. God said we're not to shed the blood of another. We're not to murder another person because that would be attacking the very glory of God and the image of God in that person. That's why murder is so wrong. And so the truly repentant person sees the sinfulness of his or her sin and sees it as a treasonous affront to God's glory. Gardner Spring once said, It is one thing to mourn for sin because it exposes us to hell and another to mourn for it because it is an infinite evil. It is one thing to mourn for sin because it is injurious to ourselves, another to mourn it because it is offensive to God. He's right. So a truly repentant thirdly sees the sinfulness of sin. Fourthly, the truly repentant, because they see the sinfulness of sin, wants complete, craves complete cleansing. Fourthly, the truly repentant craves complete cleansing. Note again here, David uses the device, the poetic device of repetition in this psalm. Not only does he repeat uh, this idea of sin and my sin all throughout the psalm, but, but notice he also repeats this desire to be forgiven of that sin. Look at verse 1. He says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purify me. Wash me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Verse 14, deliver me. So over and over again, David is not just simply asking God, you know what, can you just overlook this thing I did? Can you just cover it over? No, he wants it completely removed out of his life. And we can see that in the the words that he uses here. The word for blot out has this idea of a thorough and complete erasing of a writing from a book. The word there for wash in verses 2 and 7 is normally was used for laundry, washing of clothes. And has the idea of of wringing it out. And David adds here the word much or many because he says, I want to be thoroughly squeezed. I want to be squeezed so tightly that sin squeezed out of me. The word cleanse in verses 2 and 7 has this idea of being ceremonially cleansed so that he could approach the temple and participate in temple worship. And then there's an interesting word in verse 7. That word purify me with hyssop. That word actually shares the same root as the root word for sin. And really, literally, he's saying, descend me. Descend me with hyssop. And he adds this idea of hyssop in order that his audience would understand the picture there. He's not just, it's not just any particular plant he's mentioning here. It's, it's, it's a plant that's just not just any general plant. It's a particular plant that he's talking about here. It's hyssop, which is a leafy, short, leafy plant, which was used in ceremonial cleansing. Numbers 19 talks about if you were an Israelite and you touched a dead person, you were considered unclean. If you wanted to be made clean so that you could participate in temple worship, you had to have a branch of hyssop dipped in water and then sprinkled on you. Just sort of as a ceremony, a recognition of the need to be cleansed. Or Leviticus 14 talks about a leper who's been healed of his leprosy. He's still not allowed to go into the temple or tabernacle for worship until a branch of hyssop has been dipped in the blood of a bird that was sacrificed and then sprinkled on them. Or interestingly enough, in Exodus 12, guess what it was that was used to apply the lamb's blood to the doorposts during the first Passover? Hyssop. 
Exodus 12.22 says that hyssop branch was used. And so when David uses this reference to hyssop, when he says, descend me with hyssop, he's talking about, Lord, take away my sin that I could be right with you and be able to worship you and be able to approach you in your tabernacle and to be ceremonially clean so that I am worthy to be there because of your cleansing. And David cries out for this cleansing. Notice, not once, not twice, not three times. Eleven times! He saw his sin as as stuck to him like a disease. Like leprosy. And and he wanted nothing more than to have it removed from him. This wasn't just a simple covering. He wanted it off. Take it off of me, Lord. Remove, take it out of me. Brothers and sisters, is is that how... You view your sin. Is it a disease that must be eliminated at all costs? Is it a stain that must be removed no no matter the price? Is it a cancer that must be rooted out regardless of the pain? Thomas Watson said this, A true penitent is a sin loather. If a man loathe that which makes his stomach sick, much more will he loathe that which makes his conscience sick. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. He's right. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. A man cannot be devoted to his wife while entertaining a mistress in the next room. And that's the fourth trait. A craving for complete cleansing. And that leads to The fifth trait, which is found in verse 17. Notice there, David says these words. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this verse really is at the heart of the entire psalm. It is really the key, the key attribute. Because here in verse 17, David shows us that when it comes to genuine repentance, God is not interested in some external ritual, right? Here we see the fifth trait of the truly repentant is that he harbors a humble heart. He harbors a humble heart. God's not interested in some act of penance or some repetitive prayer or some external ritual that we would go through. What he wants is what's inside. Joel 2, 12, God speaking through the prophet Joel to a people that are caught up in rebellion, gives this interesting word picture. He says, return to me with all your heart and rend your heart and not your garments. And he's speaking there in reference to an Old Testament, an ancient Near Eastern practice where when someone was in great sorrow or mourning or despair, they would tear their clothes. We saw that with, uh, was it Jacob, when Joseph, he was told Joseph died, it says he ripped his clothes. Why did he do that? Right? He wasn't looking for a suntan. He was in despair. He was in mourning. And so here God's saying, I want to see that from your heart. Are you broken in your heart? I don't care so much about the clothes tearing if it comes from a heart that's being torn. A heart that's in mourning, in despair, and in sorrow, reflecting on what it has done. Because after all, the problem ultimately isn't this particular sin or that particular sin. It's the heart from which those sins are born, right? And that's where God wants to see the mourning and the sorrow and the response. And notice he says, return to me, or that's the Hebrew expression of repent. Repent with all your heart and rend your heart, 
not your garments. Again, God wants not just an outward act, but an inward change. Repentance is not merely what one does, it is what one becomes. It's not confined to just doing something, but being something. Again, God wants to see that the gravity of our sin has gripped our hearts. He wants to see that we're overwhelmed with what we've done, that we want nothing more to be rid of that sin. So again, let me ask a reflective question. As you think about those times of confession or you're made aware of a particular sin in your life, do you harbor a humble heart? Do you say, oh God, I have a broken and contrite spirit? Because here, the encouraging statement is, he won't despise that. If you come to him with a humility, a recognition, a rendered heart, that's all we can bring, by the way, right? What else can you bring? Oh, God, I think I got a 20 in my pocket. How's that? What? God, I have a broken heart. I've, I've sinned against you. God responds to that. It's the broken and contrite heart that ultimately yearns to be right with the Lord, which is the sixth trait of the truly repentant that's shown in this psalm. And that is this, the truly repentant longs for the Lord. And that's ultimately what's driving this whole thing. That's what drives genuine repentance. Notice David says against you and you only I have sinned. David realized the worst part of this whole thing was that he sinned against God. That it, that it was a breach in his relationship with God, that it damaged his fellowship with God. I mean, did you notice in this psalm how many times in the midst of him talking about his sin, in the midst of him talking about his desire to be forgiven, he also talks about his yearning to experience the joy that he once had. He repeats this idea. Verse 12, take a look there. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 8, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. And verse, uh, right after that, he says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Verse 14, deliver me, then my tongue will joyfully sing. Verse 15, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Beloved, this is the key distinction between feeling bad about sin and truly repenting of it. This is what makes the difference right here. This is the primary difference between a wounded heart and a rended heart. The reason we cry out for cleansing, the reason we want to be rid of our sin, the the reason we're overwhelmed with despair and mourning, the, the reason our heart is torn is not because of a consequence we may suffer, but because of how it affects our relationship with God. That's what should trouble us the most. How it affects our intimacy with him, our fellowship with him. Because listen, the truly repentant wants more than anything else to be right with his or her father. This is the central truth of the psalm. And usually every time I preach, I I usually at some point say, okay, whatever you're doing, listen to this. Hear me now. It's the main point. Now I'm going to do that right now. So if if you're doing texting or looking at emails, stop right now and just listen to this next 10 seconds, okay? The heart, central truth, the main point, how to be rightly motivated to true repentance is this. A truly repentant person is a broken heart burdened for unbroken worship. If you really want 
to be motivated to true repentance, you need a broken heart that is burdened for unbroken worship. That is what will drive you to the place where David was driven. That's what he realized more than he laid on that floor broken hearted. Not only what he had done to these other people, but what he had done to God. And he realized, I have caused my father to be blasphemed. I have brought shame to my deliverer. I have created a distance in my relationship with the one who has provided fellowship, made a way to have fellowship with him. The truly repentant wants anything more than anything else to be right with Jesus. And that is what will drive a genuine repentance. That's what is at the heart of it. You know, I see so many people who feel bad about their sin, but I think at times it's they feel worse about either getting caught or worse about letting having to tell somebody else what they've done or, or worse about the consequences that their sin has brought or they, they feel worse about, about how their sin has damaged something in their life instead of feeling worse about how it has harmed their relationship with God. That's what should really bring us to great sorrow. The truly repentant says, I have sinned against my God. The truly repentant says, I have offended the one who loves me. I have been disloyal to the one who sent his son to pay for my sins. Oh, how I long to be right with him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Brothers and sisters, I I just again have to ask, are you motivated in this way? As you come to a time where you recognize your sin or you, you realize there's an area in your life that you are not being submissive to God, Do you have a broken heart that is burdened for unbroken worship? Plead with God to give that to you because that is what will move you to deal with that sin and truly repent of it. That's what moved David. And if you do, if you are a broken heart burdened for unbroken worship, then you will take steps to change. That's the seventh trait of the truly repentant that they experience a conversion in conduct they experience a conversion in conduct it reminds me of the sunday school class when one boy was asked what repentance is and he says repentance is being sorry for your sin and then a little girl behind him says yeah sorry enough to quit i think that's deep theology right there and it's accurate it's not just a sorrow. Certainly that must be there. And we see that clearly in this psalm. But it is a sorrow that drives a person to response. Because look, if your heart is rended, if your heart is changed, where your heart goes, your body follows, right? Wherever the heart goes, it takes the body with it. That's why we do what we do. Because of what's in our heart. Verse 13, we see this idea in David. Notice he says there, after he pleads for restoration in verse 12, he says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Notice here, David makes a link between his restoration and his response to that restoration. There'll be a response. 
And it's interesting here, his response is evangelistic. You know, and the fact that we have this psalm at all is evidence that true repentance brings restoration, which brings a response. Because notice the first words in the introduction. What is that first phrase? Look back there with me. For the, or to the, choir director. What does that tell us about this psalm? David wrote this and intended it to be used in corporate worship. Now think about that for a minute. Would you write about a particular sin that you've committed in your life and then have it as part of our normal singing, time of singing together? Right? Mark, are you ready to do that? Next service, we're going to have a song about your latest sins. But here David does that. Why? Because he's, this is a response in his heart. He says, Lord, you're doing this work in my life, and I, Lord, I want to be forgiven and cleansed and be made right with you so that I can be a part and participate in other sinners coming to you. And so I'm going to make my sin public so that transgressors will be taught that sinners converted. We see a response again in verse 14. Notice there where he asks God to deliver him from the guilt of bloodshed and then says, then my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So we see in these four consecutive verses, verses 12 to 15, we see repentance, then restoration, then response. It reminds, back again, I referred earlier to what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5. Repent, Jesus said, and do the deed you did at first. Or John the Baptist, when he was calling the people to repentance, he said in Luke 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Paul in Acts 26.20, as he describes his declaration, what he was proclaiming to the Gentiles, he said that he called them to repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There's an expectation in Scripture. The two are linked. A true repentance brings a response. No response means no real repentance. Because true repentance, the truly repentant, experiences a conversion in conduct. Now, perhaps this morning there are some here, as you've heard this description here of what repentance looks like, may have come to realize, I've never really repented at all to God. I've never repented of all my sins. I've been sorry about them. I felt guilty, but but I've never done this. I've never been truly broken. I've never recognized that my sin is first and foremost against God. I've never recognized I deserve judgment for that sin. Perhaps that that might be you. As we've seen from this psalm this morning, that God doesn't is not interested in, in you performing some good work to try to make up for it, because you can't. Right? If it's like telling a parent whose child you've murdered, what can I do to make up for it? Nothing. It's the same with God. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to be right with Him. It is something He must offer, and it is only through the way that He has made, and that way has been through His Son, who has given the only payment, the only way to pay for our sin, is the death on the cross. You know, Judas Iscariot, he was he felt 
horrible remorse over what he had done. Matthew 27 describes that we know his story, right? He betrayed Jesus for some money. And it says in Matthew 27, in the first part of that chapter, that Judas, he saw what happened to Jesus. He saw that Jesus had been condemned. And it said he felt remorse. And he felt so bad that he took the money and he went back and threw it. He gave it back, gave it back to who gave it to him. So I don't want it anymore. He felt horrible. So bad, in fact, that after that he went out and hung himself. Certainly we would say he felt much guilt and despair. But do you realize his sorrow did not lead him to a genuine repentance, did it? It was a worldly sorrow that led him to death, literal death. He didn't humbly come before Christ seeking forgiveness. He didn't go to God. He didn't have the attitude of a broken heart burden for unbroken worship. He just felt bad and sought his own way out. He tried to pay for it himself. We don't know what was the thoughts in his mind. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us that he took his own life. So that tells us something. He was weighed down with guilt, but he tried to deal with it on his terms. He couldn't pay for it that way. He's paying for it now in eternity in hell. And that's the path that any who have not truly repented are on. There's only one payment. And praise God, there is one. (laughs) And that is through His Son. So if if you're in that place, you've not truly repented, come now with a broken heart, with a desire to be transformed, with a desire to be changed, with a desire to be forgiven, to cry out for mercy from Christ, and He will freely give it if it... Is a, if your heart is rended, if you truly desire to be right with Him, to be loyal with Him, the Bible says that confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What an amazing promise. So come to Christ with a broken heart. Look to the cross and see what He has done to pay for your sin if you would believe. Look to an empty tomb to see He's risen from the dead to show that He is Lord. And He's coming back someday. Now, to my fellow brothers and sisters, just in in closing. Again, we're reminded, repentance is not just a one-time act. That's salvation, right? Repentance is what is characteristic of the life of a believer. Again, 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins. That's present tense, ongoing. Or again, Jesus, he called believers to repent to the churches in Revelation. The Christian life is defined by really a pattern of, of consistent faith and repentance. And though in Christ we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, we've been delivered from, from the, the punishment, from the power of sin, we've not yet been fully delivered from its presence, right? That comes in glory. So we still have to deal with it. And the way Christ wants us to deal with it is to demonstrate a genuine repentance, just like our fellow believer David did in Psalm 51. And if you've noticed in your life, there is an area that you don't see much change in. You haven't seen change in for a long time. A particular sin or sins that you just keep going back to and back to and back to. Perhaps that is, brother or sister, you've not genuinely repented of it. I would encourage you, spend some time in this psalm. Memorize it so that you can meditate on it. 
Beg God to give you that same heart. I would encourage you also to make sure you're spending consistent time with the Lord. I would encourage you to be begging Him and be fervent in your prayers to be led by His Spirit. I I would encourage you to make sure you're in regular fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and that you open up to one of them about that struggle so they can come alongside you. And I would recommend a a couple of books that I found very helpful. One is by Thomas Watson. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance. Yeah, I know the word doctrine there may make it sound like a scary book, but it's very helpful. The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. The second one, my favorite book, is Holiness by J.C. Ryle. In fact, I'm taking that one on my vacation next week. It's a wonderful book. Those, there are many other good ones. Those are two that I would highly recommend that will help give you more insights. And then may our constant prayer be, O Lord, burden our hearts, burden my heart, that it be a broken heart burdened for unbroken worship. Make that a consistent prayer. In fact, let's pray that now. O Lord, we do come to you and ask that all of us, Lord, myself first and foremost, to to have hearts that are broken over our sin and broken because we are burdened for unbroken worship, broken because we realize not only how evil the sin is, but, Lord, how it is reflected upon you and that it is first and foremost against you. Lord, I pray for any here who have not truly repented of all their sins and come to Christ, that you would, by your Spirit, move them to do so, to see that Jesus is truly the only way the truth and the life. And no one can come to you, Father, but through Him. May you also, Lord, my brothers and sisters here in Christ, may you encourage them. And if there are any particular areas in their life that you have prompted by your Spirit to bring conviction, that, that Lord, you would move them to a true repentance, a repentance as we've seen from our brother David here. We pray, Lord, that you would make us Lord, children who know and love you and express that love by our loyalty and our obedience and our desire to be right with you so that we may have fellowship with you, unhindered fellowship. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.